Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 758 for the 27th of August, 2021. This week, many Microsoft processes start with Windows. Some applications have settings to start them at boot time, and you may have added some of your own. Sometimes it's possible to decrease the time required to start the computer by delaying certain auto start applications. And yes, there are apps for this. In short circuits, using a search engine without looking carefully at the results can put your computer in danger, particularly when a data void exists. When only a few results are returned, beware. Remember August 12, 1981? That's the day the IBM PC was released and the process of changing just about everything began. Apple and others were selling home computers earlier, but IBM was the name that made it okay for businesses to welcome desktop computers into their offices. In spare parts, only on the website, the computer chip shortage that's affected automobile and computer manufacturing is now causing problems for smartphone makers. I ordered a new computer in December 1988. It was a remarkable device, an 8286 computer that could be upgraded to use an 8386 processor. It was from Wells American, and it crashed, but not the way you might think. There's a story behind that. And 20 years ago, it looked like Bluetooth technology had a future, but it was off to a slow start. Windows starts a lot of processes and services at boot time, and some of the applications you've installed may add more. Each of those takes a certain amount of time to start, and bottlenecks can occur when multiple applications try to start simultaneously. Installing a solid-state disk drive as the boot device will make the computer start faster by eliminating disk seek time, but multiple applications can still compete with each other for simultaneous access to system resources. Admittedly, I start a lot of applications when the system boots, and that's in addition to the dozens of processes that Windows launches. I've been using Startup Delayer for several years to schedule applications in an orderly way. It is an excellent choice. But then I started using Glary Utilities, which has a similar function built in. The Glary Utilities Startup Manager seems to do a better job of identifying startup applications, but it also seems to interfere with Startup Delayer. There's probably no real surprise there. I couldn't find a way to turn off the Glary Startup Manager. Doubtless there is one, I just didn't look very hard. So I uninstalled the R2 Startup Delayer, even though it does have some features the Glary application doesn't. As it turns out, though, those are features I wasn't using. Both applications allow the user to specify which programs start with Windows and when they start. Delay times can be set to a few seconds, several minutes, or pretty much any other value. 
Startup Delayer allows the user to set times in hours, minutes, and seconds. The Glary application uses seconds for all settings, so you have to know that one minute is made up of 60 seconds and that one hour has 3,600 seconds. I suspect most people already know that. Startup Delayer allows the user to set applications to launch based on the idle percentage of the CPU and disk subsystem in addition to time values. Glary's utility omits that capability. Both launch each application in the order the user specifies. Startup Delayer also allows the user to specify that an application will launch only on specific days or if an internet connection is available. These features also aren't available in the Glary Startup Manager, but then again, I've never used them. Startup Delayer also has profiles that can be used to create and manage sets of applications for specific purposes. A games profile might launch just a few extra applications, while a work profile would launch all of the applications you need when you're working. Some of those features, though, are available only if you pay for the premium version of Startup Delayer, and R2 Software says the premium version currently is unavailable. The Glary Utilities Startup Manager displays information in three sections on the screen. The top area shows the Windows boot time and how many programs start when Windows starts or a user logs in. This is shown in red for my primary computer because so many applications start with the system, 216 of them, taking nearly four minutes. The left column shows the programs that start with the computer. There are tabs for startup programs, scheduled tasks, plugins, and application services. The right column displays detailed information about whichever processor application is selected in the left column. Unfortunately, the number of applications with detailed information is very limited. Right-clicking an entry displays a context menu that allows the user to disable, delay, or delete an application from the startup process. When you find an application you think might be superfluous, you can disable it. If the computer subsequently starts and runs normally without that process, you may want to delete it from the list of startup applications. If disabling the process creates problems, just return to the startup manager and re-enable it. And if you want to undo some of the changes you've made recently with Startup Manager, click Undo Changes. You'll find it in the bottom right corner, and it'll display a dialog that lists all the changes you've made recently. Many applications have settings that allow the user to start an application with Windows, but some don't. If you have a program that you want to start with Windows, but you don't find any option to do so, you can add the program to one of the startup folders. The goal here shouldn't necessarily be to find the shortest possible startup time. Nearly four minutes may seem excessive, but starting a lot of applications at boot time ensures that functions I'll need later will be readily available. And if the startup time becomes absurdly long, I can use it to go get a cup of coffee. Hey, that's a double win. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. 
I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, searching for information about a new event can sometimes lead to what's called a data void in search engines. Only a few results may be returned, and some of the links may take your browser to a malicious site. Google's Danny Sullivan describes the problem on Google's blog. Reports were circulating on social media about a video of a UFO traveling at 106 miles per hour. Now wait a minute, before we go any further, let's consider that speed. If we're looking for a craft capable of interstellar travel, 106 miles an hour would be dead slow. Even a single-engine propeller-driven airplane goes faster than that. So maybe even searching for something like that would be ill-advised. But people who searched for terms such as UFO 106 MPH or UFO filmed traveling 106 MPH found the search returned few hits. Google now adds warnings when searches return suspiciously little information. Sullivan writes that Google has trained the systems to detect when a topic is rapidly evolving. In that case, he says, we'll show a notice indicating that it might be best to check back later when more information from a wider range of sources might be available. So this is what's called a data void, and it's a problem for search engines, but also for applications that have search functions, YouTube, for example, because they can be used to spread hate, racism, and fake news. Emotional topics based on false information can be manipulated in ways that have negative effects on society. Microsoft Principal Program Manager for Bing, Michael Golubewski, and Microsoft Research Partner Dana Boyd have written extensively about the issue starting back in 2018. One of their reports notes that voids occur when obscure search queries have few results associated with them, making them ripe for exploitation by media manipulators with ideological, economic, or political agendas. Search engines analyze enormous amounts of data to provide the best possible information, but when a data void exists, the results can be low quality and they can contain false information. Golubiewski and Boyd identified five situations in which data voids are likely to occur. Breaking news. When a dramatic event occurs, media manipulators can link bogus content to the terms. Searching for new terms. Some media manipulators will create what the report calls strategic new terms. This happened at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, and terms were created explicitly to spread false information. Searching for outdated terms. Although less likely, outdated terms can be linked to new content designed to spread misunderstanding and hate. Searching for what the report calls fragmented concepts. These are used by manipulators to connect unrelated terms to disinformation that they want to spread. Someone searching for information about a real event might be directed to a deepfake video instead. And searching for information about politically sensitive topics. A search for vaccine information during the COVID pandemic might lead to disinformation that proves vaccines are dangerous. 
or that they're being used to microchip people, or any of the other absurd lines from conspiracy nuts. The report says that data voids can be used to create or amplify biases, and a key to reducing the danger is simply critical thinking. It's not an easy problem to solve because of the way search engines work. They simply locate and show content that others have produced. You can read the full report if you'd like on the Data and Society website. There's a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. August 12th. 1981. Seems like just a few years ago, not 40. That's when the IBM PC was released and started the process of changing just about everything. Anyone who is 40 or younger has not known a time without personal computers. Apple, of course, was selling home computers even earlier, and other manufacturers too. But IBM was what got those big, clunky beige boxes into offices. Before Apple, there was the Altair MITS computer kit that did essentially nothing. The personal computer, and now smartphones, which are really just pocket-sized computers that can be used to make phone calls and take pictures, have empowered people to do things that otherwise never would have been possible. By the time IBM released its version of a personal computer, the Apple II had been in homes and offices for several years, So had several other computers, such as those from Commodore, Atari, and Radio Shack. And the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, had been experimenting for many years with desktop or under-desk computers and trying to figure out how a computer the size of a pizza box might be developed. Desktop computers are still viable, but they've largely been replaced by notebook computers, tablets, and phones. Even IBM had several precursors to the computer that changed the world. The IBM 5150 may have been the device that started the revolution, but when IBM entered the PC market in 1981, the company countered criticism that it had arrived rather late to the party by saying that IBM had been in the personal computer business for many years. They cited machines such as the IBM 5100 portable computer that the company introduced in 1975. The 5100 ran either APL, a programming language, or BASIC, the beginner's all-purpose symbolic instruction code, and it came with 16 to 64 kilobytes of RAM. The machines were priced between about $9,000 and $20,000, hardly the price range for the average 1975 consumer. In addition to the price, the only applications available for the 5100 were for statisticians and engineers. In 1978, IBM introduced the 5110 computing system with software that could be used by businesses for accounting functions, general ledger accounts, receivable accounts, payable, inventory control, things like that. At that time, Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC, was a leader in that market segment with its PDP series of computers. A year later, IBM released the 5520 Administrative System, which was arguably the first attempt to produce a general-purpose computer, at least by IBM. The 5520 included applications for text processing and storage. Then in 1980, the 5120 hit the marketplace, 
priced between $9,000 and $24,000. Still, I might note well outside the price range for a home or individual office user. The computer had 32 kilobytes of RAM and included a fast printer. Fast, 120 characters per second. Those who bought the 5120 could also purchase applications for inventory, billing, payroll, accounts payable, accounts receivable, and general ledger. In other words, these computers were still essentially competitors for DeX mini-computers. In 1980, the IBM Office Products division released a device that they had named the Display Writer, the company's first desktop word processor. But some may insist that the 1964 IBM MTST was the company's real first word processor. MTST stood for Magnetic Tape Selectric Typewriter. Later, the MTSC, the Magnetic Tape Selectric Composer, combined an IBM Selectric Typewriter integrated with a magnetic recording and playback device. The MTST's tapes were replaced by floppy disks on the MTSC, and what the typist enters was recorded onto a cassette or a floppy that could later be edited and played back. Later versions had two tape drives and could be used for basic mail merge functions. At a time when preparing anything for print required typing information and handing it off to a typesetter, the MTST and MTSC machines were remarkable improvements. Some low-end typesetting jobs could be handled by the cold type capabilities of those systems. The jobs still had to be pasted up manually, but the process was faster, and this was effectively the beginning of the end for small typesetting operations. When the 5150 arrived in 1981, we never looked back. Undoubtedly, you have a computer that is a lot more modern than the IBM 5150. You can use your computer to view spare parts. Direct your browser to the TechBiter Worldwide website. This week, you'll find these articles. The computer chip shortage that has affected automobile and computer manufacturing is now causing problems for smartphone makers. I ordered a new computer in December 1988. It was a remarkable device, an 8286 computer, and it could be upgraded to use an 8386 processor. The computer was from Wells American, and it crashed hard. But not the way you probably think. There's a story behind that, and I'll have it. And 20 years ago, it looked like Bluetooth technology had a future, but it was off to a slow start. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.